Hey there, it's Jen. You might have heard about a recent UN agreement to protect the high seas. Those are the international waters that are outside of any one country's jurisdiction. Now, more than two-thirds of the world's oceans will be better protected. We realized our friends at another foreign policy podcast would actually cover this negotiation better than we could. It's The Catch, in partnership with the Walton Family Foundation. It's an investigative show about the state of global fishing, what it means for the economy, human rights, and ultimately our oceans. The Catch reported on the talks behind this treaty a lot last season. So host Ruxandra Guidi caught up with two leading experts soon after this agreement was reached. They share how nearly two decades of negotiations led up to this treaty. And if you appreciate this conversation, there's more. A new season of The Catch launches today in both English and Spanish. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, handing it off to Rooks. Hi, everyone. Welcome to The Catch. I'm Ruxandra Guidi. We're very excited to announce season two of our podcast. We're focusing on the drive to end illegal fishing in Mexico's upper Gulf of California and the efforts to save the vaquita porpoise that's endemic to that area. Check out the trailer and make sure to follow and subscribe as well. But before all that, we have a special bonus episode today. After decades of negotiations, an international treaty for international waters has finally passed at the UN. The High Seas Treaty greatly expands protections for biodiversity and puts in other important safeguards for our oceans as well. We talked about this a lot last season, so now we'd like to welcome back two of our guests from season one of The Catch, Lisa Speer from the NRDC, the Natural Resources Defense Council, and Duncan Curry from the Deep Sea Conservation Coalition. I'd love to, to start with Duncan. If you could please remind us what the high seas are to begin with. Oh, well, the high seas is the area beyond national jurisdiction, which means normally 200 miles out from a country's coast. And it's an enormous area, which is incredibly valuable. We know that while there is some fishing going on, there's also a huge amounts of unexplored species that we don't know anything about, but they, they are being impacted by climate change, ocean acidification, pollution, plastics, as well as overfishing. So, and right now there is no way of establishing a marine protected area in the high seas outside Antarctica and a small area in the, in the North Atlantic. And scientists tell us that a marine protected area is the best known way to combat these uh, effects, particularly climate change and so on, to build resilience in the ocean. So everyone, I think, really, quite frankly, agreed with that. And, and the discussion we've been having for the last couple of decades, really, is how to do it, not whether it should be done, because everyone knows it needs to be done, but how to do it. And so we finally reached agreement on how to do it, and that's really exciting. Yeah, it's a huge deal. And and Lisa, speaking of marine protected areas, I think you've referred to this treaty being the equivalent of Yellowstone National Park. Can you tell us what you mean by that? So I think this agreement is more like the Paris Agreement for the Ocean uh, in that it, it establishes a whole new set of 
pathways forward for conservation. And as Duncan said, the science tells us that the most important thing we can do for the ocean and in the face of climate change is to establish fully and highly protected areas where damaging human activities are prohibited. And this treaty provides a, a pathway forward for that, but it also provides a basis for strengthening management of human activities outside of protected areas. So by addressing these two major issues, establishing protected areas and strengthening management outside of protected areas, this treaty lays the groundwork for far greater conservation and resilience in the ocean. And, you know, last year we had sent Rosie Jewell and our producer to meet you all in New York where you were sitting in conference rooms days in and days out. And, and there was some cautious optimism that there might be an agreement. But what finally led to this big breakthrough, do you think? The outstanding issue, which carried over from the last negotiation session we had in August was marine genetic resources. And that's simply the issue of how is the world going to share the benefits of marine genetic resources, which are things like sponges, deep sea corals, viruses, bacteria, things that already have been found to contain important properties for things like you know, pharmaceutical industry in particular, but also food applications, industrial applications. There's been a concern by the developing world in particular that, well, this is unfair. You know, these things are in what's called areas beyond national jurisdiction or in the high seas or on the deep seabed. And they belong to everyone. And if there is a cure for cancer or some amazing pharmaceutical property, then it's not fair that you can say, right, this is mine. Thank you very much. I'm going to make billions of dollars. And there was a breakthrough in the last two days of the, of the earlier conference when the European Union and other countries accepted that monetary benefit sharing was on the table. So once that concession was made, that was, that was really groundbreaking. It's pretty amazing. I mean, I'm wondering, Lisa, what insights do you have about having witnessed these two decades of discussions and then see a breakthrough in two days' time? It was really a, quite a remarkable feeling in the room, I have to say. Uh, we had been up all night, and finally, uh, really at the very last moment, a breakthrough was reached on a particular issue which uh, I had, for one, not anticipated being one of the one of the sticking points, but it was really quite a, a moment in the room. There was applause; people were, you know, crying. I mean, it was very emotional. Yeah, and and you know, this high seas treaty goes beyond protecting biodiversity and recognizing threats like climate change. Can you walk us, I guess, starting with you, Lisa, through some of these? big provisions in the treaty? Yes. So I will, um, just in broad strokes, there are four elements of the treaty um, that were agreed to uh, back when the negotiations were launched. Uh, the first is marine genetic resources, which Duncan referred to. The second is area-based management tools, which include marine protected areas, but are not limited to marine protected areas. The third is environmental assessment and management of human activities in areas beyond national jurisdiction. And the fourth is capacity building and technology transfer. So there are there were four different sets of issues, and each one 
was largely negotiated in uh, separately from the other. And so many of the hurdles at the end were kind of connecting the dots and potential linkages between different parts of the agreement. Uh, and that proved to be a challenge, I think, towards the end of the time we were there. And there are so many stakeholders involved in these kinds of negotiations, right? I mean, we're talking sovereign nations, environmentalists, commercial fishing interests, mining, deep sea mining interests. So I wonder, Duncan, if you can explain a little bit of that process. How does this treaty try to satisfy all these different players? Does it? If you had to ask me what the single biggest achievement of this treaty was, it is that countries will be brought together once, once a year to discuss these issues, because there hasn't been that kind of forum up until now. There's been nowhere um, that general ocean issues can be brought to a body such as the UN or an international body to be discussed and to raise new issues. Say, hey, this is happening. This is really bad. Or what are we going to do about this? Or this new issues are arisen. What we have now is not just the Conference of the Parties, we call the COP, but also a whole series of modern governance uh, framework organization. Well, there's a scientific and uh, technical body. There's an implementation and compliance committee, and there are some spe the special purpose committees, such as an access and benefit sharing mechanism for marine genetic resources. Mm -hmm. So to put it simply, there's now a framework and there's guidelines and there's tools available. Um, Lisa, could you just speculate, I guess, a little bit, because it seems too early to say, but how might this treaty impact um, the people who depend on the high seas, right? I mean, in our podcast, we focused on fishers in Peru last season. This season, we're focusing on the upper Gulf of California. And we're really looking at how fishing as an industry and, and efforts at conservation affect fishing communities. And I'm wondering how this treaty might, might shape that relationship in the future. Yeah, it's a really good question. So um, the ocean being a fluid environment, uh, animals, fish, mammals, birds migrate freely back and forth between the high seas. And... Uh, areas within national jurisdiction um, the, within 200 miles of the coast. And so what happens on the high seas can have a, a, quite a significant effect on marine life within national jurisdiction that is used by communities. And so I think this treaty will help give those communities a greater say in what happens in areas beyond national jurisdiction that could affect them over time. That's a very important aspect of this treaty because billions of people worldwide rely on fisheries and other marine resources for basic livelihood, for their protein, for their jobs, their income. And so uh, sort of bringing the high seas into a more conservation-oriented posture will, I think, be really important for communities around the world. The other thing that, uh, you know, we've talked a lot about the conservation benefits and the benefits to people, but I also think that one of the achievements of this treaty has been a kind of confirmation that multilateralism can still deliver solutions to pressing global problems. And for a while, you know, in this age of 
growing skepticism and about multilateralism, this is a real win uh, for this for the whole concept. And I think that's going to be important moving forward, not just for the high seas, but for environmental and other issues um, writ large. Now, I, I understand that trips to these UN meetings were became something of a yearly ritual for you both. Are you going to be missing <laughs> missing those? No. <laughs> Lisa, Lisa, Lisa shaking her head. And I think um, one of the exciting things or the worthwhile things was that we, we did actually continue talking through video um, over the, the dark days of COVID. You know, we'd have hundreds of of delegates um, in these calls, and uh, I think what I'm really hoping we can we can use these modern technologies going forward. You know, we don't want to massively increase our carbon footprint. Yeah, it's a new model of sorts. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Thanks, Rex. Bye. Lisa Speer is the director of the Natural Resources Defense Council's International Oceans Program, and Duncan Curry is a lawyer with the Deep Sea Conservation Coalition and the High Seas Alliance. Thank you so much for joining us. Mm -hmm.